Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode six. Uh, we're uh, back with uh, the man in the right there, Rich Diaz with Acorn uh, Macro Consulting. Some of the finest research and best charts you'll find on the internet. And of course, we've got uh, our favorite boomer, as always, in his Patagucci, Keith Dicker uh, of Icecap Asset Management, um, you know, professionally managing money for 30 years. How, how you doing, Keith? Doing great today. How's everyone? Rich? I'm good. It's good. It's raining and it's miserable outside, but it's a nice inside and I'm happy to talk with you guys. So here we go. Yes. Speaking of rain, we'll get into that because we had a a nice Uh, washout here in BC, uh, which again, uh, being Canadian and obviously myself living in BC, we'll focus on some of the uh, economic ramifications of uh, what's happening here in BC, uh, of what's, you know, uh, shutting down some of the, you know, the Vancouver port. Um, Obviously we've got food inflation on the top of everyone's mind and that seems like that's going to get worse. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I think first and foremost, I want to touch on, um, not to beat a dead horse here, but uh, Canada's CPI inflation uh, coming in, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rich, I think it was 4.6%. 4. 4.7. 4. 4.7. So kind of uh, right along expectations. And that was, in your opinion, Rich, you were like, well, that might be a, a good argument for the transitory camp. Um, explain your rationale there. I just thought it was actually so. I've so I've norm I've hated the transitory uh, camp for a long time. It doesn't really mean anything to anyone. However, this print, which came in four point seven, the expectations were four point seven or four point six five, I should say. I think it was actually it sort of lends a lot of you. Could, if you look at the data closely, and I'll go over it in a second. It actually it was sort of a lot of good news in the sense that um, you had like. You had services component, which was actually started to slow. You had a bunch of key components like shelter and transportation, which were like, you know, 30 year highs have come off those numbers. One of the things that I always look at is the the BOC three preferred measures of core inflation. It's this very fancy thing that eliminates transitory and sector specific fluctuations in inflation. That's a big mouthful. The point is it's, it's, it's meant to avoid any garbage from supply chain stuff, et cetera. And that's slowed. So what is, that? what is that at right now? So I can tell you exactly what that's at. It is at, well, one, it's like 2.9 and 3.9, 3.3. But for me, I'm looking at the pace and the rate of change. And it, when you look at the chart, you say, you know what, actually, maybe, however, you look at say, things like PPI, excluding energy, and it tells you there's ways to go. So I think we're in this like weird position where we're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. I was going to say, if you start to suggest that inflation might be transitory, you're going to get dogpiled on here. Online. No, I, I might be the last one. But listen, if the, I, I just follow the data. If, I mean, I'm ha- always happy to change my mind if, 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 if proven so. But for now, I, I still think that that word is very, very bullshit. Keith, you have any preliminary thoughts? Yeah, see, uh, you know, I think we're all amateur economists, you know, at, at some level. And uh, what one of my favorite armchair economists, armchair, you know, amateurs, all the same, same stuff. Uh, yeah, but you know, but one one really cool stat. So this is for the U.S. data overall. I think uh, for the period from 1968 or 69 up to. 
I know, 2014, last time I saw it. Uh, I th- the numbers aren't quite right, but you get the, the gist of it. I think there's been 12 recognized recessions in the US during that time. The Professional Economic Forecasters Association or something something like that, whatever the acronym is. So out of these 12 recessions, the, these lads predicted exactly zero. Not one, <laughs> not one of them. Uh, and you know, the other thing that's really great about, about this data set not only did this group of economists collectively not predict any of the recessions or forecast recession, they've never collectively forecast a negative or a decline in economic growth during the same period. So my, my point is some economic data points, uh, you know, you just got to take them for what they are. And like so for the average person on the street, they don't care. They see prices going up. And, you know, I, I think we said last week, my, my view of the whole inflation thing at some point pretty soon, you know, it, it, it's sort of going to start eating ourselves and uh, that will solve the problem in a different way. But with economic data and, and for Canadian data specifically, and, and Rich would know this, uh, the, the GDP data is, is pretty good. Inflation data, they're a lot better with. Whenever you start looking at employment numbers that come out, it is, is the biggest uh, variability or fluctuation from the actual number to the consensus estimate from one month to another in Canada. It's the worst I've ever seen. And, and actually, uh, I remember a few months back, uh, actually a couple of years probably, one month, uh, the revision for the employment number was ex- the exact number needed to offset the miss they had from three months before that. So again, my point is we're sort of <laughs> rambling on. I won't. You know, we, Statistics we... Canada or data coming out in Canada for the economy, sometimes it, it can be pretty third world. It, it could be pretty funny. So, You're here. What you see. so trust what you see yourself. That's what I'm telling people. If numbers are going up. When we, uh, we, we talked about this. Was that, was that great quote? We talked about this before the show, but there's a, about how, you know, mm, we're doing our best efforts here, but a lot of the, the data in, in Canada is, is, is pretty suspect. I mean, um, you know, we'll throw up this chart here of, uh, from Rich, from uh, the, the Canadian food inflation, right? I mean, um, I think the government, Rich, what was it? It was three point six percent. It's it's in the it's in the threes. It's in it's you know what? It's less than four. I think that's the more meaningful way to put yeah, it. Yeah, sorry, three point eight percent is what they've got for uh, food inflation, and they even got like you, Rich. You did a good job here. You broke it down like table service restaurants. I don't know if anyone else has gone out for 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 food at a restaurant. I have and. You know, I can tell you food at restaurants is up a hell of a lot more than 3.6%. Um, I mean, year on year. I'm not a fancy guy, man, but like dinner for two is now in Vancouver is like a hundred bucks plus easy. Okay. In Halifax, it's 80. Easy, easy. Um, and that's with one drink and something's happened. There's been a shift that in prices materially higher than any of the statistics what's that what's that famous quote it's from like jeff bezos i think he says like it's like if the data doesn't quite match up with the uh what is it what is it that What's that? You know what I'm talking about. I'm, I actually have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, no, he's like when, when, the, when the anecdotes overwhelm the data, it's usually the anecdotes that are right. Like, you know, when something doesn't pass the smell test, you're like, mm, 
I don't know. As a data guy, I really don't like that. But in this case, <laughs> it's the exception that proves the rule. I think everybody listening, I think the three of us talking, my mother and my sister, everybody knows that prices of food, all food, not fancy food, all food has gone up far more than three, four, five, 10% even. And so, I think that there's like a real dislocation with the data. And I think it's real. I, I hope, I really hope that when Tiff Macklin sits on the CBC couch or the whatever and talks to the reporters, that he knows in his mind that the, all those numbers are bogus. <laughs> <laughs> Keith loves it. Why am I wrong? Uh, well, no, I mean, I, so, I mean, I, I can only comment largely from a housing perspective because that's like I'm in the trenches. I'm in deep in that space and it's like yeah i look at a lot of the the, the government data that comes out on housing and i'm like oh man like that is not reflective of like what i see day to day you know the rental market or vacancy rates and all that stuff um so give but, us an insight into that is it too high too low like where is the major discrepancy keith outlined that employment's a big discrepancy i'm saying that inflation's a big discrepancy but gdp is pretty good uh, I think that, uh, for example, uh, the worst data in, in, in the housing market is the rental data. Um, it's consistently underreported. So they'll say, oh, well, you know, rents are up, you know, in Vancouver, you know, 4% or something. And it's like, well, it's 10 plus, like, or, or it has been in the past, for example. And the problem with that is, I think we've touched on this before, but basically what they do is Stats Can, I believe, interviews or CMHC actually collects the data. And they interview property managers who who manage professionally run multifamily apartment buildings. The fact is, is you're not capturing uh, the rent turnovers. Um, yeah, you've got people in there. You're surveying people that have been in their rental thing for 20 years and haven't had a rent increase in 10. And you're not also factoring in all the, I mean, so much of the rental market in, in Canada is through private landlords. It's through mom and pops that have one or two condos. You're not surveying those people. Um, and that's more reflective because those people tend to have higher turnovers. So it's so, the churn. I mean, they're missing the churn. They're missing the churn, right? So, I mean, that's that's probably the biggest thing I can say. Let's just, let's just go back though for a second. Because, uh, you know, we have all this anecdotal, you know, data points that I know that doesn't make sense, but we have the anecdotal stories. Uh, but just just to come back, though, from a central bank perspective, the, the central banks, they do use core inflation. That's what they're looking at. You know, they, they know the price are going up and everything, but but they're not going to very quickly start ramping up overnight rates because everyone on the street c- can see this. There's a lot of other considerations they're using. So it, but it, it's fun for all of us to talk about and, you know, commiserate about it and things like that. But central bank, they're living in a, you know, a 4% inflation world right now. And they think they can control it and bring it back down to two. And they're never going to, you know, react rashly, like what's happening in Turkey today, which I do want to talk about, by the way, as we get going. Yeah, we'll get into with, that. With the sec. call today. But again, it's very important. Uh, again, it's just from from me as being an investment manager. Uh, you know, our success has always come from understanding how central banks are going to react to something. How will governments react to something? How will the corporate sector react and stuff like that? And it's, it's very different from what, you know, the you know, the, the lad on the street is, is how they are going to react. I think, I think Keith, I think that's actually like a brilliant point. Cause I've, I've tried to make that point as well before, you know, respond to people here on Twitter and stuff. It's like, everybody thinks that 
it's like, well, central banks, they should do this. Like, you know, for example, you should normalize interest rates because like housing prices are going through the roof. But it's like, that's not how central banks think. Like you might think that's how they should react or this is the rational thing to do, right? But like, as you just mentioned, it's not about how you think they should be. It's how do they actually act and behave? And, you know, I think I like, obviously it's from an investment a, manager's perspective and even from Rich's perspective, you have to keep your emotions out of it. Well, that, that's such a, such a fantastic point, actually. Um, I could not have put it better myself. I would just add that for in my job and I would argue, and I, I'm going to speak for Keith for a second. So please forgive me, but it's, it's not about what they should do is about what are they going to do? Right. It's, it's, and you're, you're hundred percent. I think it's so important. All I do is think about not what they should do or what they, I would do is what I think is going to happen. I think understanding those mistakes or when they get it right, I think is so important. And I think a lot of people on Twitter and YouTube and everybody else spends a lot of time talking about what they should do. The truth is they're not in that chair. So it doesn't freaking matter. You know, like, I don't know. I think well, it's the really one thing that I always do. Really and the one point. thing I always found interesting, just on coming full circle, but, uh, you know, on like, I don't know, I always find it interesting that we have like a national, for example, you have like a national inflation rate, right? So you're saying, okay, like that's going to come down cores in the threes, whatever. But it's always interesting, right? Because like, let's say that that inflation rate comes back down to 2% and inflation's great. No, no need to hike interest rates now. Um, I always found it interesting that you got a national inflation rate when you've got the, the global or sorry, the major metro. So take, for example, the inflation rate in Vancouver and Toronto, for example, these major metros is probably running in the double digits, but like inflation in Dieppe, you know, New Brunswick, you know, where there's no economic growth, it's stagnant, could be half a percent. Steve, you, you cut out there, mate. Sorry. You, right. When you were saying that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I sorry. was saying, I was just I was just saying that basically I found it very interesting that you, at, at the end of the day you only have one you have one inflation rate for the entire country when inflation um, is much different in the large major metros than it is in suburbia New Brunswick. But I don't like I'm using that as an example. Why don't you share with us you know what what's been happening out in you know, your neck of the woods with, with with the flooding because I know we have a lot of a lot of listeners here from the west coast and they're familiar with it but maybe a lot of people here on the east coast and in central canada they just don't understand what's what, what's happening and, and how it's affecting everyone yeah. no that's a good point yeah so i mean for those that aren't familiar obviously i'm here in bc but uh, it's been picking up on on the news but basically we had in the lower mainland here um in the province of BC, we basically had a month's worth of rainfall in one day. And obviously everybody knows in Vancouver, it rains a lot. Um, so we had a month's worth. Basically what happened is it washed out major, major highways um, in BC. And essentially there's now no throughput. So you, you <laughs> caught like there's entire cities or entire small towns in, in BC that are completely submerged underwater. Um, people have been evacuated and what's happening now. So again, tying everything all in together is for example, um, most of a huge portion, I should say of Abbotsford, which is 45 minutes from the city of Vancouver. Um, so, uh, most of Abbotsford is underwater right now. Um, basically and Abbotsford, the BC government of course comes out. So Abbotsford is responsible for about 50% of you know, our food source in BC. So you're talking eggs, milk, 
Uh, it's all the farmlands in, in BC are predominantly underwater. And so, of course, the BC government comes out and creates more hysteria and says, nobody panic, uh, which is the cue for panic, and says, you know, don't go to the grocery stores and, and hoard food, you know, be a good be a good citizen. And of course, a couple hours later, there's all these viral videos uh, that all the grocery stores in, in parts of BC are being ransacked. Um, so, but basically, uh, to come full circle here is the port of Vancouver, um, is, is, has basically no access. So the, the rail cars, CP rail, CN rail, uh, can't get and deliver their grains. And obviously half of our, um, you know, farmland is underwater. So we're, we're probably going to have a, a food scare food crisis here, which will certainly, uh, help the non-transitory camp. So I mean, I think what's good with what what my point is that it it's a uh, it's a perspective to think about with, with central bank policy, and um, obviously this is a very difficult situation for everyone out there, and you know my, my heart's are just with everyone who's going through that right now. Uh, but coming back as an investment manager, just say you're so rich, you're now the uh, head of the Bank of Canada. You've got inflation shooting up now or going to shoot up in, in the West Coast. How can you change monetary policy to bring that back down? I, you, you don't. You can't resign. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think that's the, one of the points that a lot of people are missing around the world right now with the inflation data. Like they're, they're thinking that you know central banks caused it by having low to negative rates and all that stuff. But you got to keep coming back to the supply chain constraints and, and shutdowns and, and so forth. Because if you think about it, I mean, with, with central banks, the Bank of Canada was at zero for what, 18 months, basically two years. And all of a sudden inflation's coming through. And again, I, I know these guys at the Bank of Canada and they're saying, oh, we created inflation, but maybe we created a little bit too much. At the same time, the Europeans have had negative rates now for uh, about 12 years and they, they cannot create inflation. So uh, again, it, it's really good for investors and, and individuals and, and families, everyone to understand that you can have you know, natural disasters that could take place or supply chain disruption, that, that's what it's gonna be. You know, and it is gonna impact uh, prices of goods and things. So go back to your micro, sorry, go back to your economics classes, you know, maybe your demand line and your supply curve, you put two of them together or you shift one, but not the other. And that, that's what's happening here. So the demand side is roughly staying as is, and the supply side is is switching. Do you have any but, quick? Okay, so, can I just step in there? So I got to say something. So like, so Keith, I agree with everything you said. But the problem, I think, so there's two things. One, we should be more forgiving of central bankers. I probably am at the head of the line of people who should be more forgiving of central bankers, given the constraints and given the fact that it's a political job. Not a, you're not a technocrat. You're a politician. But that being said, they did not have to buy 87% of all of the debt that was issued in the last 24 months. So, and to ignore what is obviously a housing bonanza is also, you know, these people are smart, they see what's going on and changing interest rates may or may not change supply issues, but it sure as hell exacerbated what was already a bête noire of the Canadian economy. And so that's where I, I, that's where I don't agree, I guess. It's like, 
it's like that famous uh, Jim Grant quote. They, you know, Jim Grant always bashes at the Fed. And they say, Jim, if you were head of the Fed, what would you do? And he says, I'd resign immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just can't think of a worse job. Uh, and I bash, I bash these guys all the time, but it's like, yeah, they, they are, it's, it's a terrible job. I mean, it's a thankless job, but. Um, so let's, let's next then, um, you know, I, I want to talk about Turkey and uh, do it. Yeah. American do it. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You, you, lo- you love Turkey. You love Turkey. It's we, American we've Thanksgiving been, this week. Yeah. <laughs> As God is my witness. I thought they had wings. So uh, yeah. or, no, I thought they could fly. I think that's what Les Nesman said. Um, but you know, because you know, I'm in U.S. markets most of the time with the way my day works. Uh, American Thanksgiving, I take it off every year. So actually, as a as a good Canadian, I take a double holiday on on that day, which is good. Uh, but back to Turkey, the country, what's happening? And, and again, this is very important for Canadians to know. So leading in in into today and last month and stuff, there's been so much complacency in the world with you know across commodity prices equities, currencies, you name it, like no one sees risk happening coming from anywhere. Turkey uh, has been a a slow motion train wreck with with the currency. It's been declining slowly, slowly, slowly. And then, you know, how do you get in trouble? You know, very quickly. That's where they are today. So so right now, overnight, uh, they're a central bank. So uh, they have inflation running crazy over in Turkey. They have to import all of their energy. Uh, they have a, a net flow out or outflow of U.S. dollars. You know the economy not doing very well. So they're a central bank. What they did, they cut interest rates today. So they they shopped everyone. And, you know, there's a lot of political uh, factors tied into that. But so you know, they believe raising rates will create inflation, or Erdogan does anyway, the, the president of Turkey. So, uh, and then he keeps, you know, hiring and firing central bankers till they do what they want. Well, this morning he got what they wanted. You know, they, they cut rates, I think it was 100 basis points. And uh, so the lira is now, once again, like it's in free fall, you know, here today and, and yesterday. So the question is, why is that important? Because there's been so much complacency around the investment world over the last 18 months, everyone's made money. I mean, it, it's it's pretty hard not to make money these days with all financial markets. Uh, everyone is now starting to look for an excuse or reason to take money off the table and, and to sell. So all of a sudden, over the last couple of weeks, currency markets are moving that way. So the South African rand, it's coming down hard. Peso came off hard. Uh, even CAD had a bit of an off day a couple of days ago, same with Real and things like that. Um, but the events in Turkey are important. So the Central Bank of Turkey, their foreign exchange reserves, which is mostly U.S. dollars, is basically in a negative position right now. And people say, well, what, what the heck does that mean? It means that instead of having U.S. dollars in their reserve account, the Central Bank of Turkey are actually taking it from the commercial banks and then using those dollars to buy Turkish lira on the open market to try to stabilize the currency. That would be the same as if the Bank of Canada knocked on RBC's door and said, hey, we are taking all of your US dollars on deposit and we'll give them back to you when when we're ready. So that's what's happening in, in Turkey right now. Within Turkey, people who have US dollars on deposit, they don't realize their money has gone missing. They still see it on their bank statement when they go online banking. They, they still think it's there and everything. But the point is that it, it's stumbling, it's spiraling pretty quickly. 
and uh, a lot of the Spanish banks have exposure to Turkish debt with at the sovereign level. They also uh, have equity ownership in some of the Turkish banks. Remember, banks are always levered, depending on which way you're looking at it, 10 to 20 times. That, that's the way they are. So uh, just the smallest loss in Turkey will creep over into Spain, which then seeps up into France, down to Italy, hits the German banks, over to the UK banks, and, and so forth. And, and this is the kind of event that we're looking at here now where we can see how a sudden global growth, you know, it, it really comes slowing down dramatically at the exact same time when these prices are, are high for everyone. So uh, again, again, this is an event that people need to, when they're listening to this now, start researching Turkey because it can be the event where, you know, Les Nesman will come out and, and say, yeah, it's God is, yeah, it's God is my witness. <laughs> I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> yeah. Well, is that, is that, uh, do, do you view these events as somewhat core? I've just noticed uh, this week, you know, coming kind of full circle with, uh, you know, we, I know you love the, the ECB, right? Like uh, ECB Lagarde there coming out and saying, pushing back on all these rate hikes, uh, basically saying, you know, now is not the time. I think we had the RBA, which is the Australian Central Bank, came out and poo-pooed that basically and told everyone to go take a hike. I mean, doesn't that doesn't that all come back sort of to? I mean, are they? They're, they're probably not really looking at Turkey, though, are they? Are they looking at Turkey or my? Yeah, these central bankers. They're. I mean, they're probably not really looking at it like. I, I mean, they probably are. They probably aren't optimistic. They probably are looking on it. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to say that they're probably yeah. definitely if they're smart central bankers. They have it on their radar for sure. I think what Keith is saying is that as investors, that's where you know you you with the market being so complacent, you look for pinch points, the things that are going to like topple the deck of cards. I think that he's right when he talks about Turkey, and I think he's right about the buyer strike too. That's like some of the thing that we're talking internally is like. You know, talking, you know, if inflation keeps going up and up and up and people like one of the things that and maybe we'll, we'll share this chart this week is inflation expectations. And for years and years and years, they were flat. And now they've massively spiked for consumers, consumer inflation expectation. And that's a, a huge, huge thing. And I think it's whether it's Turkey, which we should be very, very mindful of. We're not sure if the central banks are or not, but we should then there's this. It's weird that it's so complacent. Think, so, like think, an, another, uh, yeah, yeah, another story. Like again, people may not be aware of it or not, but you know, Turkey is really uh, one of the gateways for, for migrants to go from the Middle East into Europe, into the EU. So, the golden ticket, if you're in, say, North Africa, the Middle East, you get into the EU. You go to Germany or Sweden, you know, which is which is a great country to, to land in as as a migrant. Um, Turkey has closed the doors because the EU is paying them billions of dollars a year to, to keep the fence up, basically. They say, hey, you house these guys and we'll pay you. Um, what's happening right now in Turkey, they now want more money. Uh, you know, have migrants are up against the fence now in, in Poland. I don't know if anyone's watching yeah, that. Belarus, Belarus yep. and Poland. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Can you explain that a little bit further? So, so what's happening, th things, are, things are so bad in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, again, like, like, like food inflation, for example, we talked about the Arab Spring from a few years ago. You have the same kind of situation is happening in that everybody wants a better life. That's all they want. 
if life is not very good where you are, you move. So as Canadians, we have total freedom. We can we can move to Vancouver, Calgary, Ontario, wherever you want to go, we're able to do that. It's very difficult to move into the EU because people want to go there because the EU governments, they give out so many benefits for everyone. And it, it costs it's not money, just that. Come on. It's a great place to live. It's safe. There's no violence. Yes, the benefits are huge, but it's there's no bonds. Carry yeah, on. Yeah, it's Sorry. better than before. Yeah, it's it's better than a, you know, than where some of these people are. So what's happening though, and again, we go back to Turkey. Um, you remember the it was an attempted coup on Erdogan a few years back. I think it was orchestrated on his side personally to make it look like. Me too. I think that too. <laughs> but the point is, uh, you know, he has a lot of support within Istanbul, but outside, not not so much. Uh, there's always the possibility here. And again, to add to it, you have all the natural gas pipelines, you know, from the Middle East are, are flowing up to Turkey into the EU. Uh, you have the possibility here that Turkey can go up or down in flames at the moment's notice which all of a sudden then opens the floodgates for the next new migrant crisis into Europe at the exact same time when the economies start to roll over again. Um, you know, the ECB, you know, they'll never raise rates, guys, no matter what they say or don't say. I agree. But again, like these are just examples where events from outside of Canada can affect us globally. And so again, like I've often said that the challenge to the Canadian housing market, for example, is not going to be a Canadian-specific event. It's going to come from somewhere else. I've always said Europe. I always said Europe would be the, the key market for it, but maybe it's an emerging market country. But these are the big hotspots that, uh, you know, everybody that I speak with my network these days, uh, we're all watching this like every day right now. And, you know, capital that can move freely at a moment's notice, it, it does. Like it, it'll go like that. And then once capital starts moving, it, it snowballs and sort of, you know, creates what it was trying to run away from. So then, Keith, can I ask you a question? I, yes. I guess I just did. But what I mean is, so I, I agree with everything that you said, and I think the market is absolutely complacent. You are like the first person I've spoken to who is on that. But the problem is you've basically outlined a situation where the central banks are basically never going to raise rates. So how how are you how can an investor be bearish in an environment where there's no squeeze from monetary policy? That's the that's the trouble I'm having right now in formulating my view. Right, because every yes. every every slowdown is met with control plus P. Yeah. So the uh, so where, where does the squeeze come from? And it comes from the emerging market world. So it won't come from sovereign okay. debt markets. So it'll come from credit spreads, for example. So everyone knows, and you know, you can get a mortgage rate. What, what's a five-year term? I have no idea. Uh, today, two point four. Okay, so let's just say, for example, some bad things happen around the world, and it gets reflected in in the yield curve. So credit spreads move up, and people say, "What the heck does that mean?" What it means is that that five-year term goes from two point four to four point eight. Okay, that's, but wouldn't the Central Bank of Canada? So, but wouldn't the Central Bank of Canada just step in and purchase more bonds to keep that number down? I guess that's my point. Well, I mean, they're they're they're, they're reactive to that. So this is where the commercial banks. Remember, the commercial banks and loan growth, especially in the U.S., it, it's the growth is slowing considerably. 
So you're not getting money creation in the US. So if you're RBC and TD, any of these guys, and all of a sudden you see risk is increasing, you, you know, you, you increase your lending standards, you know, make sure more deposits are required to get the loan and you jack up rates a little bit because bankers don't like to lose money and that's what they're fearful of. And central banks are reactive towards it. I mean, that's what but to be, yeah. to be, sorry, to be fair, not to nitpick, but um, credit card growth is growing in America. And I think that's an important, uh, something to throw out there. Isn't there uh, a very realistic plausibility in, in that case, Keith, where you have that mortgage rate goes to 4.8 or whatever, but the, the short, the short, uh, the short rate, you know, the, the BOC's overnight rate, which is currently 0.25% for those paying attention, just doesn't move. So yeah. you got you have spreads blow out. So your five-year fixed mortgage goes to let's say 4.8, but your your overnight rate stays basically at zero, i.e., your variable rate mortgage, if you're on that, doesn't change. Yeah. And like you think about like Rich, you like you know, central bank, Bank of Canada buying mortgages, for example. Crazy. They did that because you know, back in, you know, February and in March of, of 2020, you know, the banks knocked on their door and said, hey, we need you guys to buy this stuff. Because if you don't, we're going to go under. That, that's what the threat is always out there. And they say, holy smokes, if, if, you know, Canadian Bank, if they get in trouble, all that makes me in trouble, then everyone's in trouble. And then that afternoon, Newfoundland called them and said, uh, we, have a, we have a bond coming up next week. And we know we cannot roll it over. You know, they just had bad luck. They were the first Canadian province that had debt coming due during this crisis. So again, it's the, it's the central bank being reactive. They didn't decide out of the blue, let's buy mortgage-backed securities. You know, the, you know, again, like these central banks, they speak with their top commercial banks every single day. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? Are you ready new business? Or what are your loan losses like? Your provisioning and charge offs, and, and you go down to the whole, but, but the whole Keith, list. Keith, it's everything, tough though, guys. Keith, everything that you've laid out, I agree with one hundred percent. Straight, your premise, in my view, is exactly how I feel the premise should be. My issue when I'm trying to figure out my view, and for the first time in a long, long time, I feel like I'm on, on unstable ground with respect to being bullish or bearish, and my clients need to be invested. And so everything that you've laid out makes me feel like you still want to own equities over bonds. And I just want to make sure that that's, am I interpreting your, what you're saying, right or wrong or. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So with a, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but with a clear, clear understanding that you might have shitty returns in that equity, but they will be less shitty than owning bonds. If that makes sense. Sorry to interrupt you, but. Oh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, so for us, we wouldn't, our client portfolios are invested across maybe five to six different, we call them asset classes. So one of the biggest ones would be the equity markets, for example. We feel that you're able to structure your portfolio today across a whole mixture of different kinds of, of markets so that we know, for example, just say we get another huge risk-off event, we know our equities are going to go down pretty hard that we hold because, you know, equities go down in, in that scenario. However, the other allocations we have and, and you know, the, the sense they will make money during that kind of a market. So I think for investors these days, if you are proactive, you know what central banks will do, you know, what, hey, a slowdown is coming. There are still ways to, to stay invested, 
but to reduce the probability of that large drawdown. Now, of course, by doing that, it means you're not going to get a 25, 30% return, right? But, but really, like, who wants to be up 30% one year, down 15 the next year, up five? I, I don't. I'd four. have a heart attack. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's tough. So, uh, it, again, I know we're sort of you know, floating around a little bit here, but... Guys, no, I think I, that was for me... I have to a be honest with you, that was really, that was genuinely, honestly, and no, no bullshit. That was very important for me to hear from you because that's when I say to you, I'm having trouble and trying to understand for the first time in 20 months. And am I bullish or am I bearish? I, I don't actually know. And to hear you say that for me was very genuinely, was actually very, I, I think, very useful. Yeah. I think there's some great opportunities to, you know, to make money here coming up. And because uh, if we get the, like the slightest downtick in, in equity markets right now, like it could turn into a floodgate and like who's, who is not fully invested in equities. So we're not, we, got, we got plenty of opportunity to go in. And so there's, I mean, there's lots of ways to make money and, and, and plus as well, um, you know, you know, we're not going to go down the financial product road here, but there's a lot of new innovation and different strategies that will help your portfolio do better or not as bad. You know, if we do get this, is this volatility coming up? Yeah, long, yeah, long. It's, you just go long, long volatility. Yeah, like volatility and, and convexity. If you know people know what that is, so it's it's really again, if you just stay pragmatic about it, then I think it's a great. It's and a great you do this in your life. And you you do this in your portfolio, or in for your clients? We, yeah, we do. Yeah, yep. I'm a client. Full disclosure. <laughs> well, I've seen the minimums, by the way. So that's uh, good for you. Um, Steve, Steve is the client that calls every day. And I, can't yeah. I can't afford Keith. <laughs> um, Keith, I have a, uh, a question from your comment earlier about, you know, for example, um, just I'm trying to spin this back for, for the for Canada, Canada land here. Um, if you had that five-year mortgage rate come up to that 4.8% because spreads blow out and the Bank of Canada, for example, tempor temporarily loses control, do you have an opinion? I mean, it's so hard to say, obviously, but like, how long do you see that lasting? Because my, my always, and similar to what Rich was kind of saying, my always hunch is these guys will do whatever it takes, including throwing the kitchen sink to try to suppress uh, you know, interest rates or yields or you know, credit spreads, essentially. <laughs> Um, how long do you feel that distorts, right? Because I'm just thinking about it from a market perspective, obviously housing. So if you, you know, those, those five-year mortgage goes to 4.8%. I mean, if it's only there for, you know, three, four, five months, you know, probably not the end of the world. It would certainly probably bring housing prices down for a little bit. Um, do you see those getting back under control and how would they, how would they react? Uh, so in, in that environment, again, I think that's being driven by factors outside of Canada. So again, it's not, you know, because of something inside the country. Uh, the next big, remember, we're in a world with zero negative rates. Governments, you know, they, they borrow too much. They're talking about creating their own central bank digital currencies and you know, all this fun stuff. The, the next event that these guys want to do will be to cancel debt. You know, that's what they wanted. They're saying, hey, if the Bank of Canada is holding federal government bonds, you know, just cancel it. Like, why do we need to pay? Because it just goes, you know, in and out. Uh, so I think that's the road we're going. But Canada will not be the first up to do that. So other countries would do it first. And then 
you know, Canada will will follow in line. As, as how that would have one one two three probably Japan one Europe two, Fed three. Yeah, I, I think Japan is that that's there's there's, there's too many over there. There's, there's too many good lawyers in the U.S. The U.S. will never do it. There's way too many lawyers in the U.S. to let that happen. I, I don't I don't see it happening in the U.S. So it's pretty easy in Japan though. So what they would do, the Bank of Japan. I mean, they already own like nth percent of sixty percent, isn't it? They own more than that. They they own a ton <laughs> of the market. But if you think about it, like they you know they on, on Friday afternoon. Uh, they make an announcement. Hey, you know, banks are closed on Monday for this holiday, and the Bank of Canada, uh, sorry, the Bank of Japan, they bought all outstanding government of Japanese bonds. So they have them all on their books, and they can't just cancel them because because those. Oh no, sorry, because they own all of these bonds, that means no pension funds hold it anymore, right? So then, when they cancel it, it's not a loss for anyone. It's just a, you know, an accounting ledger entry you know for these guys but the only way to get to the point where you can not pay back the debt you you have to have the whole market to do it because remember so anyone with i like picking on rbc because i used to work there but if you're holding like the rbc balance fund you know you probably have 20 the 30 percent government of canada debt in that fund uh you know if that went to zero you know it's game over so that has to be acquired first and and so forth but you know back to your question those uh, steve um i I think if we go from 2.4 to 4.8 in the five-year mortgage very very quickly the world we're living in at 4.8 is going to look very different than the world that we have today and at that point in time people are going to look back and say yeah, of course we knew this was going to happen you know we we watched the loony hour right so we can we know it's it's going down the, the modern think, modern day debt jubilee. Yeah, something is gonna make things look different than than where we are, and that's not a bad thing. You know, it's again, if you're prepared for it, um, you know, you just keep going on. I wonder if, I mean, I don't know how much how much additional time we got here, but Keith, I have three. You. I have three minutes. I'll save this one for another time, but I was going to have a very busy boomers are always on a boomers are always on a schedule. He's got nap time coming up. Um, (laughs) Is there a mailbag question, Steve? Is there a question from the, Uh, I've, I've scrapped the mailbag. Oh, really? uh, Have a good story. Have a good story for everyone that we should go into. So good Canadian stuff here. So everyone saw the Canadian national soccer team beat Mexico. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. Uh, and, yeah, it was really cool. And uh, so I don't know if anyone, you know, follows, you know, World Cup soccer for Canadians. Like we haven't been very good for a long time. So the last time we qualified for the World Cup was in 1986 for, for Mexico. How old were you, and, Keith? Uh, I was, I would have been 16 back then. <laughs> so, uh, but I was, a, I was an exceptional soccer player. So I was really following it. And uh, so the last last qualifying game that we had you know, to get into the tournament was against Honduras, and it, it was in it was this time of year. And because Canada was hosting it, you know they they looked around the country and said, "Man, who has the crappiest weather? Who can we make you know the, these lads from Honduras, you know, come up and like just just freeze themselves?" So they had the game in St. John's, Newfoundland. And that's that's where I was living, of course. So uh, you know that the pitch we had there, maybe you could, it, maybe it's said a thousand people. We had five thousand people crammed in there, and you were yelling and screaming. 
And, uh, you know, the, the poor Hondurans, they show up and, you know, I think one of them said it's, it's cold outside, but at least it's windy. You know, it, it was pretty bad. So anyway, we won the game. So you now a little, you know, congratulations to the Canadian soccer team, you know, that won this week. And the other side story of that, we you know what makes Canadian geography a bit different for some people. Honduras that year, they had maybe a hundred fans that were going to travel with the team to St. John's, you know, to watch, to watch the game and support them. Uh, their travel agent sent them to St. John, New Brunswick instead of Newfoundland. So uh, <laughs> these guys had to watch the game somewhere else as well. Anyway, that's oh, some Canadiana for us all. I love it. That's a good good way to wrap it up. Episode six. <laughs> we'll we'll be back next week. I got. I have a, a conspiracy theory I'd like to share for next week. And, and I will be. I'll be in America next week, so I'll let you know how it is down there. Land nice of the free. Week. Where are you going to, uh, Richmond, America? I'm going to Bedford, Connecticut, just outside Rhode Island. So I'm flying into Boston. I'm going to egg some Boston Bruins fans. And then I'll uh, take the train up to Rhode Island. And yeah, there you go. What are you doing there? My girlfriend's family's out there. So I'm going to go uh, spend some time with the fam. I'm really excited. I love America and I love American Thanksgiving. There's football on TV, turkey, and... Maybe I'll get into a gunfight. Who knows what happen? Actually, we're we're invited to Connecticut next week as well, and uh, but we're not going to be there. For, we, right, can the loony, the we can take your private jet. Take private jet. Yeah, well, uh, we should get like a loony hour uh, bus. We'll go up to Connecticut. <laughs> Road trip. Good stuff. Okay, guys. Oh man. All right, guys. We'll uh, wrap this one up here.